Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 312 with Damesh Shah of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you are doing okay wherever you are around the world. I know it's an extremely crazy time right now. Hope you and your family are healthy and safe. Um, And I hope your business is doing okay. I know a lot of people are going through a lot of challenges right now. And at Founder, we're here to help and support you however we can. We're producing so much content and uh, we just got some awesome stuff to really help you. So let's talk about today's guest. His name's Damesh Shah. He's one of the co-founders of a company called HubSpot. And uh, yeah, massive, massive company, listed company, nine-figure company. And uh, Damesh has really invented the category of inbound marketing. Now, what's interesting about what HubSpot and Damesh and, you know, his team and everyone at HubSpot have done is effectively what they've done is they've created a category for their brand. So when anybody hears the word inbound or inbound marketing, they think of HubSpot. And I think that's a really key thing to take away that if you want to build a company of true worth and significance, Whatever it is your product or service does, if you can become a category king and even coin a particular type of marketing or type of category, um, then, you know, it is just so extremely powerful. So 
I talked to Damesh about inbound marketing, effectively content marketing, and how you can use it to grow your business, especially during times like this. I did this interview a while ago with Damesh, and as you guys know, we backlog a lot of our interviews, and we've got so many incredible founders to come for you, but um, it's really, really important when you think about these particular times. If you have to cut back on your expenses and costs, one thing that you do have is time, and you can spend more time hustling harder than ever to get things on track or to get your business started. And, you know, with content marketing, it's really, really just your time that you have to import to get results. So, yeah, I talked to Damesh on how you can get started, everything you need to be thinking about. What is good content? Everyone says you should produce good content. Actually, like, what is that? How should you be thinking about all that and so much more? All right, guys, that's it from me. If you are enjoying these episodes, we work so hard to find the most incredible, hard-to-reach founders, and this is all 100% free. Um, So if you could share this with two of your friends, either people that want to start a business or are trying to grow their business, if you could share this with them, it would be incredible. At Founder, we are working super hard to create a household entrepreneurial brand It impacts tens of millions of people with our content every single week. And what we're building at Founder is really, really special. Uh, The content we produce is extremely actionable and 99.9% of our content is free. Um, So guys, if you are enjoying this, please do share this with a friend or multiple friends and make sure you leave us a review wherever you're listening. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now I'll jump to the show. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how'd you get your job? How'd I get my job? Um, you're talking about the, like the startup I'm in or my first job? Yeah. How'd you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, I, um, my co-founder and I were graduate students uh, at MIT, and we have a shared passion for startups and small business, and we decided you know, we saw a problem in the kind of how companies were doing marketing, uh, that the old kind of approaches to marketing were no longer working, where you buy an email list or you buy a list of phone numbers and kind of cold call people. And that there was a better way now that the internet existed, you could kind of create blogs and podcasts and things like that and add value to your uh, value to your audience. Um, and we recognize that, you know, although that was a better way to do marketing, uh, it was difficult for most small businesses to kind of have the technical sophistication to kind of pull those tools together to be able to kind of do it right. So we decided to build, start a company and build a product that made it easier for uh, small and medium-sized businesses to, to kind of grow using the internet and using what we call inbound marketing. Yeah. Now I'd love, um, you know, HubSpot, very, very well-known company. You guys are a clear market leader in the space. I'd love to talk about the, the, the term inbound, like, you got you guys coined it, and um, you know when everyone hears the word inbound, they think of HubSpot, and you know a lot of a lot of startups do do that if they want to take a market. Um, SaaS's in, in particular do 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 that when you want to take a market. Um, like you know, if you think of as like the you know the sales funnel, there's obviously click funnels, or if you think of yeah, all sorts of companies. So I'm curious, do you think that that's something that is is important and it has been a really key ingredient for you guys? It has been a key ingredient, but um, you know, if I were 
advising a startup, I think you need to walk into that decision very mindfully, which is you're trying to create a new category. Um, it happened to work out for HubSpot and, and we were deliberate about it. We said, okay, uh, we're kind of looking out in the landscape and say, you know, how best do we, what category, if we had to pick an existing category for our software product, you know, which one would it fit in? And the categories that existed just didn't really click. Um, so the, the most likely one would have been something called marketing automation, which, you know, is, is fine, but that doesn't capture the idea of inbound marketing. And in fact, it kind of was almost contrary to it at the time. So uh, we decided that we, we should label this kind of new category of, um, so we, you know, we coined the term inbound marketing. And once we did that, you know, we had to do all this work around creating the category. Uh, and I think one of the pivotal decisions was around not trademarking the term. So we didn't, although we coined the term, we deliberately did not trademark it. Uh, and we told the world that we would love for them to adopt the philosophy and the term uh, because we just wanted the category to exist. We didn't necessarily need ourselves to kind of own the term. Uh, and I think that helped. Had we done it differently where it was just a HubSpot specific term that was trademarked and no one else could call them what they were doing inbound marketing, I think the movement uh, towards inbound marketing would just not have taken off. So that was one of the lessons lessons learned. Interesting. So um, when it comes to kind of inbound and, and content, using content as a way to you know provide value and then in turn build a relationship with a prospect or just you know building an audience, and then you know when somebody needs a solution, you hopefully are the first per, uh, person or company that. Uh, they think of back then in 2006, were people using content marketing to to grow companies? Not really. And this this is what kind of made it hard, right? So the idea, I mean, the, you know, blogging existed as a thing. Social media was a thing. SEO was a thing. But this notion of um, using content to kind of drive, you know, drive customers in um, or potential customers in was, it wasn't completely absent, but that was definitely not the trend. So I think, um, you know, we were early in that game. We just, one of the few things we got right, which is that really was, um, you know, the old school marketing really was a problem. And marketers everywhere were experiencing this kind of diminishing return from classical approaches to marketing where you get a trade show booth or you, you know, take a billboard out or, you know, buy a list. All the, you know, um, humans had become immune to classical marketing approaches. We were getting very, very good as a society blocking out unwanted marketing. And so, that's where the kind of we called all those approaches kind of outbound marketing, where you're pushing a message out, and that's why the inbound marketing was kind of the opposite of that. Can you pull people in as a result of kind of adding value or saying something useful, or you know, just uh, yeah, pulling them in versus kind of pushing a message out? Yeah, it makes. But sense. It was not common back then. It, it seems obvious in in hindsight now, 13 years later, but at the time it was relatively new. And um, the, the good news though, we didn't get a lot of resistance uh, when we talked about oh, here's what's broken. Um, you know, we're all immune to, you know, the classical marketing, you know, if you, pe people looked at their own behavior, you know, we got up on stages and wrote a book and things like that. So there was no resistance to the idea because it made sense to people. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't like getting spammy emails. I don't like, you know, getting a phone call in the middle of dinner with someone trying to sell me something. And so it, it wasn't that big of a leap. Uh, the, the harder part was not getting them recognized that there was a problem. The harder part was, you know, getting people to start blogging and start creating content uh, because they have these kind of internal constraints in their head that says, oh, I'm not really a writer, or I don't know how to create video, or um, those barriers. And, and, and the truth is that you don't actually have to be a professional writer. You're not looking to win Nobel Prizes. You're just looking to share your story and teach people what you know that can help them with their, uh, with their business. 
Yeah, and yeah, look, all that makes sense. And the landscape's changed a lot now in 13 years. And one thing I've noticed, um, you know, looking at startups or speaking to startups is, is usually um, early stage startups, they usually grow from, you know, obviously they have to have a great product or service, but then you need to choose a vehicle or a mechanism to grow or an engine, uh, you know, a vehicle. And it's either paid, um, they're really, really good at paid, or they're really, really good at, 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 at you know, inbound. Um, in this in this marketplace now, right now in 2019, should people still be fo- you can't? It's hard to focus on both, like pay, paid acquisition and you know content marketing. What should people be thinking about in the early days? Um, I think if you're, if you're going to do paid acquisition, which I understand uh, why startups do it, and uh, obviously it's it's effective, um, but it's a very efficient market. So. If you're going to do it, you have to do it very, very well uh, because you're up against, based on what category you're competing in, um, up against kind of paid marketing ninjas that, that have been doing this for a while. They've been tracking the data. They have, they know their conversion metrics so they can kind of afford um, to make the investment that they do. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't do or startups shouldn't do, um, you know, kind of paid channels, but you have to kind of really get crisp around, um, you know, which keywords you're buying, you have to kind of watch and you know, monitor the analytical data. You need to kind of get, make the investment and get good at it um, if you're going to do it. But even today, I would still say, uh, and yes, you're right, it's hard to do both really, really well. But um, I would still kind of balance your, as, as an entrepreneur, balance your investments a little bit across both paid and, um, and content. And, and it can be whatever form of content is comfortable. It doesn't have to be blog writing. It could be video, it could be podcasting. Uh, it could be you're publishing data if you're, you know, like more of an engineering focused thing. I also think of free tools as a form of content. So if you're a software company, let's say, um, you know, your content could be that you give away part of your product for free or related tools for free. HubSpot did this in its early years. And that often works really well as well. And the nice thing about uh, investing in content is that you're essentially building this durable asset. That you, So for instance, you know, blog articles that I wrote 13 years ago when we started the company even today, still drive traffic, still drive leads, and still bring us customers. Uh, the issue with paid is that as soon as you stop paying, uh, you know, let's say you know, times become tough, um, that traffic literally immediately stops. Uh, that's issue number one. Issue number two is that let's say you find an economic model where I can afford to pay Y dollars per click for these keywords. And as a startup, I figure out that you know here's what the value is that I'm getting on the other side. The challenge is that you are sort of at the mercy of the market. Uh, so you could have a new venture-backed startup that just raised $20 million, come in and buy up those same keywords in that category. And not even overnight, literally immediately, your cost per click goes up and your economic models break down. Um, so I'm not suggesting avoiding pay-per-click, but you need to kind of balance it with this kind of durable asset mindset where you're creating something that people can't take away. That, um, that even if in a downturn, you have to kind of stop investing in, in blog posting or con- whatever content you're creating, at um, whatever you've done to date still kind of brings you value over time. There's this kind of layered approach. but um, but you're right, it's non-trivial, uh, but I would still, uh, I'm not saying spend 100% on content-oriented inbound marketing stuff, but uh, it should also be zero. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I just think it's tough, you know, like because everyone's talking about pay, 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 and it's easy, but then you compete, you know, against companies like like HubSpot, <laughs> HubSpot and like, yeah, it's just hard, you know? So then, but then the content piece, uh, it takes time to see a return. You know, sometimes it takes, one, you know, months. Yeah, one, one tactical tip, since we're on the topic, um, what, just sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, uh, sure. I'm thinking about it. The tactical tip would be, you know, one of the hardest things around content creation is figuring out what content to create. Uh, like, what are the keywords I should be going after? What are, what's the thing I'm trying to solve for? 
and paid is an exceptionally good learning tool. So my suggestion would be don't just start blogging and doing it kind of willy-nilly because you have no idea that even if you were to rank for a particular set of keywords, what the conversion rate would be, it's going to take you some time to kind of get that traffic flowing in anyway through um, organic search. So my I thought would be uh, use paid if for nothing else, at least use it to say, okay, I'm going to test these you know, 15, 20, 50 keywords that I think are bringing value to my business, send some traffic to some uh, some content and see if those things convert and see if that uh, that message is resonating. And then you can say over time, oh, it's like, oh, we're spending $5,000 a month on these set of keywords. Is it possible for us to actually create content that ranks organically for those same keywords over time? Yeah, that's really, really smart. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Thank you. Um, well, look, I'd love to switch gears and talk about culture because I know that's something that you're very, very passionate about and you publish the, um, yeah, the culture co- code deck or manifesto or body of work. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's it's got a lot of attention, and and it's um yeah a big part of, I guess what's fueled uh, HubSpot's growth. So one thing that I'd love to start with is why is why do you think uh, culture is so important? Uh, a couple of things. One is, you know, culture helps kind of internally the organization make good decisions efficiently. It just helps you operate a, a more effective company um, based on and. And without passing kind of any moral value judgments, the idea. So I, the way I think about culture. So you know, you've seen the culture code deck. Uh, by the way, inside inside story, the uh, the word code in that culture code, most people most people often think of as like a code of conduct. Uh, and when I wrote it, it was not written as like a code of conduct. It was written as literally code. As as an engineer, I'm like, okay, if I could write an operating system on which the company itself would run, uh, you know, what would that look like? So so the number one reason to you know be very kind of deliberate, like to have a, you're going to have a culture regardless. Every company has a culture. Um, the more intentional and deliberate about it um, you are, the more it will be like the company you envisioned it to be, right? If you just let it uh, kind of grow on its own, most of the time, you're not going to wind up with a culture that you wanted uh, because you just weren't deliberate. You weren't hiring for it. You weren't, um, you know, promoting people for it and you just weren't operating it in that way. So my, one of my, if I could rewind time um, in HubSpot, I would have written that culture code much, much earlier. It might not have been 128 slides uh, in, in the first go, but uh, it, it was just so impactful for us to, to sit down and think about you know, what kind of company we wanted to build. And then it helped along so many levels. It helped with recruiting, um, not just people, so you can think of it as a form of inbound recruiting, but also self-selection uh, because you know, HubSpot's culture is not for everyone. And we save um, potential candidates and ourselves a bunch of pain simply by them selecting out, it's like, oh, they read the culture code deck. It's like, oh, you know, no one has an office. Like I've, you know, I've been in the industry for 25 years. I, I, I can't see myself uh, in this kind of company. And, and that's great. You know, they should find a company that, that fits them. Uh, but it's nice to kind of have it articulated and, and get it out there. So um, my strong advice to, to entrepreneurs is, and it doesn't, you know, just even if it's just a one page thing, kind of you know, sit down with your co-founders and your team and figure out, Kind of broadly, you know, what kind of things matter to you, and 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 try to avoid the cliches. Um, and you know, everything in your culture should be something that not everyone agrees with, right? It's um, that it just happens to be your particular way, not the right way. Yeah, and when you think about culture, and and the when you you know wrote that you know slide or the culture code, it's basically the way that you view the world and 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 your personal. Um, values your your and Brian's values, right? It is, yeah. And it's 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 interesting. So it's 
you know, we've iterated on it just like just like code um, over time. So it's gone through a bunch of changes over the years. And but yeah, it kind of captures the kind of company, that, the kind of values that we have around kind of transparency was one of the core values ever since um, the company started. And you know, our first kind of cultural act at HubSpot, well, well before the culture code ever got written, was just around you know Brian and I sitting down deciding like, just we want to build a company that the two of us want to work in. Like, what are the things that, you know, will make it joyful for us to come into the office and, and do the work we do? And so a lot of what you'll see at HubSpot um, in the culture is essentially something that's like, okay, well, Brian and I don't like hierarchy, don't like, you know, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. So we don't have a dress. It's like all these things that, you know, we just built a company that we thought would be a, a fun and engaging place to work. And then the rest of it sort of, you know, came from that as we got increasingly kind of intentional and deliberate uh, to try to articulate some of the other things. Yeah, I see. And one thing I'm curious around is, is how do you make sure that culture spreads, especially because you guys are really big on autonomy. Um, so you, you know, have different offices, remote teams, remote workers, and that's a, that's a very, very fast growing trend where, you know, it's not uncommon for startups, um, you know, especially early stage to be fully remote now. Like, so how do you make that spread? Yes, I think, um, you know, culture is easier when you're co-located, when everybody's kind of in the same uh, in the same physical space. But in this day and age, it's I don't think it's necessary. Like I've seen, uh, you know, great companies with, uh, you know, great cultures that are fully distributed. So that happens. Um, and yeah, even at HubSpot, we have an increasing percentage of our workforce that's that's remote. I think the important thing, uh, kind of step one, if you if you want to make sure, uh, is to, uh, and I can't emphasize this, is to write it down, right? So it's like, okay, here's what it is. Otherwise, if you think you're gonna communicate it via osmosis to you know a growing base of uh, um, base of people, that that just doesn't work. So number one is you sort of have to write it uh, write it down. Number two is you have to keep repeating it. Um, and this is a thing that's often painful for founders, uh, certainly painful for me, is like every company meeting, you know, uh, we call it an all minds meeting versus an all hands meeting. But to every every company meeting, you know, my topic is is, is culture. And, I, and I'll say the same things kind of over and over again. And um, and to the point that, you know, it's like, I'm, like I can't believe I'm going to say this again. Uh, but that is a very effective and very necessary thing. It's uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we think we've kind of communicated all and we've kind of transmitted it and it's there. Uh, often it's not. Uh, repetition actually is very, very effective. Uh, and I've had, you know, my leadership team come back to me. It's like, Darmesh, thanks so much for putting that message out there. My team needed to hear it. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is as you're growing, you forget the fact that, uh, yeah, you may have said those things, but if you're growing really fast, let's say you're doubling every year, that means that at any given point in time, most people in the company have never heard you say those words. Uh, and that's important for them to kind of hear it from the founders, um, how important it is, what it really means. Sometimes kind of the backstory and the mythology around um, around the cultures is, is kind of important to um, keep putting out there. By the way, one, um, one kind of related thing on culture that I think is, is important, this was a kind of just an observation. So the way I, I think, and I didn't have this uh, epiphany early on, but, uh, but a company actually builds two products. They build a product for their customers, which is the kind of classic product we think of. Um, and they build a product for their employees, their team. And that's what culture is. Uh, and the more you think about it that way, uh, the easier uh, and more kind of naturally it comes to you. For instance, all the things you would do in building a product. And when I say product, I mean offering. It could be a service. It could be whatever it is. Um, there's no entrepreneur on the face of the planet that would say, oh, I'm just going to build this product. I'm never going to get customer feedback. 
you would never do that, right? So you would say, oh, I'm going to put the product out there. I'm going to see what customers think. I'm going to see if people are buying it or not. I'm going to see if they're canceling. Uh, the exact analogs exist um, in the culture as product idea, right? Which is, oh, you should never build a culture without getting feedback from the employees as to whether that product is working for them or not. Uh, you should get feature requests. Like, okay, here are the things I would love for the culture to do in the future that's not doing right now. Uh, here are the bugs in the culture, things that are we think are just broken. Um, and then you look at, you know, you have to kind of track the data just like you would for, um, for your customer-facing product, which is, okay, over time, are people more or less happy with, you know, with our culture over time. Um, just how is it kind of, how is it holding up? And and that's been a very, very, and then you think it's like, okay, well, yep. So, so every quarter HubSpot right now collects data from our entire employee base. Um, and we ask the, the same question that we ask for customer net promoter score, which is the kind of customer satisfaction score. We ask our employees and say on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend HubSpot as a place to work? which is a classic NPS question. And the, you know, the second question is, you know, why did you give that score? And so every quarter we will go through that list. Uh, every quarter, now we have hundreds of responses. Um, we'll go through that, we'll summarize, and we'll say, here's what we heard back from you folks. Here are the bugs that are in our culture right now. And there are some things we'll be, you know, yep, you know, I know a bunch of you folks asked for this feature or to fix this bug, but that works as design. We're likely not gonna do anything about that. We're very candid. And we'll talk about it in the next company meeting. Oh, and here are things that you folks asked for within the next you know, three, six, 12 months, we're going to fix that. So that's on our list of things to kind of put in the next release, uh, so to speak, of the culture. Um, but that's been a very useful kind of analogy uh, or a framework to work with to you know, think of it as a product. And it's a, it's a living, breathing thing. And just like a product is not static, um, as you know, the product grows, uh, you add features, you have to kind of fight for simplicity, just like you would in a product. And culture is the same way. Uh, you know, you're fighting every day uh, for kind of battle complexity as an organization grows. Yeah, I see. And you know, one thing I saw in the in in the deck was you guys think about um, culture as retention strategy, not just for the customer, but also the employee. Um, can you maybe elaborate on that more? Um, sure. So if you think about, um, so in the same way, we want to keep customers. Obviously, we want to, to keep employees. Um, you know, it takes a lot to kind of try, you know pull people in and recruit and go through the process. There's a you know, a hard dollar cost, but also just a time and energy thing. So I think it's intuitive that we would want to keep our employees. So then the question is, okay, so what keeps people happy and engaged? Um, and then, and the answer there is like, okay, well, it varies from company to company. So let's just ask them. So the reason we have, you know, autonomy in there is that, as it turns out, especially with um, people earlier in their careers, if you look at, um, it, it's, it's one of the core features people are looking for in, in, in HubSpot that keeps them engaged is that level of autonomy. So we take that very seriously. They like the transparency that we're sharing information. They may or may not read all the financials and everything they have access to uh, within the company, but they like knowing that it's there, that they have access to it. There's nothing happening behind closed doors that they're um, unaware of. So we just made a list of the things that we think of as kind of flagship features of our culture. Um, and that more we invest in those features that, you know, our employees as, you know, as customers care about, uh, the longer they'll stay, the longer they'll stay, you know, uh, customers of the culture, you know, employees of the company. Yeah. And I'm curious, out of all the data you've collected thus far, what, what, what matters the most? Is it, is it the work that people are doing? Is it the impact they're making? Is it their salary? Is it the compensation that they're getting? Is it stock options? What, 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 what matters the most you've found from your experience? And I know you advise a lot of companies as well. Yeah, uh, the number the number one thing we've learned, uh, and this has been consistent across the years, the thing people 
love about working at HubSpot, and this is a little bit recursive, so it bothered me in the, in the early years because I'm not exactly sure how actionable it is. But the number one thing they love is the other people at HubSpot. So who they were working with and alongside, like far outweighed anything else. Um, so, so then the question is like, okay, well, that's sort of recursive. So that means in order for me to have, you know, keep my great people, I have to kind of keep great people. So it's like, um, and so then you kind of go to number two and number three and people love the autonomy. That's the, uh, that's probably the second thing, which is like, I like, and so I, one of the common patterns and I think great people now in, in this day and age, you know, this guy will pass as a value judgment. Um, so I think there is a right way and a wrong way. People just fundamentally, the good people, great people love to learn. So it's the degree that you can say, okay, we are the company that's going to allow you to learn the most. And this is one of the, one of the things that a startup can offer um, that you know, bigger companies often can't is that you know, startups will expose someone to whatever they want to be exposed to. And that's awesome. Um, so if you can give, and, and the way to learn, right, is you have to be able to make decisions. You have to be able to fail. You have to be able to try things. Um, so if you don't have the autonomy to actually do anything and have any discretion to actually make choices and see whether they work or not, it, um, it's very hard to learn. Um, so kind of autonomy and learning go, in, in, in my mind, hand in hand. So if you can provide folks that and provide them a, a way to be around great peers that are brilliant and a, a way to kind of try things out and learn. And if they're kind of committed, maniacally committed to kind of being becoming masters of their craft, whatever it might be, um, that goes a long way. And the rest of it sort of tends to work itself out. Yeah. And I think also in the early days, a big part of it, because often, you know, these people have never done what they need to do before. Um, they have to problem solve. And the number one way to do that is is just self-education, going out there, speaking to people, reading books, reading blog posts, you know, reading, reading and listening and, and watching and, and learning. And you just have to be obsessive to be able to, to be a master of your craft. And then in, in, you know, that's, that's how you, that's how the company grows. If, if everyone's learning and solving big problems. That, that's, that's totally right. It's um, so if you, you know, I've talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs over the years and, and that's one of the common patterns is that, um, and most of them, you know, especially first time founders, you know, they've, they've never done any of this before, right? This is not like, you know, they, anyone went to school and was a classically trained entrepreneur. That's the, that's a very rare thing. Um, they kind of get thrown into it um, or they throw themselves into it. And it's just a matter of kind of adapting, right? It's like, uh, and, kind of looking beyond your own kind of whatever you think are your personal constraints are. And you know, some of the most successful entrepreneurs I think we've seen in the society are folks that, uh, you know, chips were sort of stacked against um, that they, you know, they would not have been predicted to be successful entrepreneurs, but they kind of just were learning machines um, and they were just able to kind of absorb it um, and kind of keep pushing through and, and kind of stick to it and, and keep going. Yeah. So I agree with you. The best kind of team, um, members are people that are learning machines um, because if they don't know it that and that's why you can hire on attitude not necessarily skill and experience um, I'm curious though we have to work towards wrapping up um, you talk about the autonomy piece um, this, is, this is a question from personal experience Sometimes, uh, depending on the size of the team, remote and a mixture of remote and like a location base can be quite messy. Um, I know you guys do it now, but in the earlier days, early days, HubSpot, what is your thought? Like, did you do you think it should be go all remote or just all in like in the location or? Like, uh, you know, right now with our company, we have a combination of remote and two different locations and it can be tough, like across culture spreading, but then also communication. Yes, you have tools like Slack, but it's just not the same. 
No, it's not. And and I'll, you know, in all candor, so you know, HubSpot's doing um, you know more and more remote now, and I've been an advocate for of it for a while. Um, but there's um, and I was part of this internal resistance, right? Which is, you know, we have a working culture. It's, you know, things are going relatively well. Uh, and like, okay, how do we? So even you know, putting aside remote work, um, you know, HubSpot's a global company now. We have you know offices in in, in uh, nine different countries. It's like, um, and I in the early years, kind of, I fought that first office that was outside of our kind of headquarters in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and the reason I resisted it's like, okay, well, we've got something magical here. The alchemy is working. I'm not sure how we're going to transport this across an ocean. And so I was very resistant to that first office. Like, okay, we really need to do that. Um, and and the, because the risk was so high. And I still believe that um, trying to do that mix of remote and co-located is, is, is very tricky. And you have to kind of understand the trade-offs um, and then mixing it with this kind of notion of autonomy. This is one of the reasons I was worried is that, you know, how does that work? Like, you know, uh, it's hard enough providing autonomy when you know the 20 people in the company are all kind of in the in the same room um you know how do you let someone that you've never possibly never met before you maybe saw once in the last year uh kind of own things and make sure that they're being held accountable and that they care as much as the people that um and so and so we're kind of learning as we go the thing uh that i'm trying to teach myself and teach uh, others in the company is that just because someone happens to be remote um if if we don't think that they're capable of you know making decisions and and using good judgment and having autonomy, then they shouldn't join the team, you know, whether they're co-located or not. Uh, and if they do join the team, then we have to trust them just as if they were in the, in the same building. And then we will work through whatever other issues we need to. But we've got to get that part right. We have to have that trust. And if that means uh, in the in the first year they're flying to wherever they need to be to be co you know, just to build that trust. Uh, we haven't kind of worked out the mechanics of all that yet, but. Um, that's crucial. That's the thing that I think that would uh, be toxic in the long term um, in, in terms of mixing remote and co-located if we can't have the same level of kind of rights and privileges uh, for every company, person in the company, regardless of whether they happen to be in one of our offices or remote or however it happens to be. Yeah. We have not have that. We don't have that all figured out yet. Yeah, I agree. Um, but just coming back to round it out, early days. Um, because 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 of the tools, because of these marketplaces like Upwork, where you can find you know a data scientist or someone that could work you know ten hours a week editing editing your videos, like it's just insane. Um, I'm curious, like early days, what should early stage startup founders be thinking? Do, do, should they still do from your experience co located or in a combination of remote or yeah? Yeah, my. Yeah, if I were doing it all over again, I would do, um, so I wouldn't mix it, especially in the early days. I would do like either all co-located or just do all remote. Uh, that's kind of advice number one. Advice number two would be in terms of Upwork and freelancing, I think you just separate some of those things like, oh, I need someone with this discrete task and I'm going to go hire on someone on Upwork for 50 or 500, whatever it happens to be. That's a very different thing than the kind of early team that you're kind of hiring full time. What you want is people that are waking up every morning, going to bed every night, thinking about how to better serve customers and how to build this company. And you're not going to get that from a, a freelancer. That's just not how that relationship um, is designed to work. So it's completely okay to have folks that are remote. It's not completely okay to have people that are on the team that are just not committed. Um, you know, unless you're doing it for like, oh, I just need them to you know, edit this blog post or do this video editing. That's a different matter. But if you're you know, hiring your kind of head of product or head of engineering or design, whatever it is, anything that kind of touches the core business and touches the product and touches customers, those should be people that are full-time that are committed to the company. Um, my personal take is, you know, they should have an equity stake of some sort. Um, so they feel a sense of ownership. Um, 
But yeah, I, I would do one or the other because mixing it in those early days is really hard, um, like harder than the alternative. So I would start just, you know, um, just, I would just start remote um, as, as a beginning point. And then over time, as the company matures, you know, you might have clusters of people that are in a specific location that happen to get together, you know, once a week or once a month, whatever it happens to be. But um, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, awesome. Well, look, um, we can work towards uh, wrapping up, Damesh. Um, just last question, anything that you'd like to finish off on um, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? And then, yeah, anything, any parting words uh, for early stage startup founders? Um, so one kind of last piece of it, and this is the thing that's kind of helped me across my um, entrepreneurial career, is just become maniacally obsessed with the customer problem. Uh, don't fall in love with your particular solution or where, the way you're doing it right now, but it's like attach yourself to that customer problem um, and kind of just stay focused on that. Um, and in terms of just finding me, I'm, I have a personal blog called onstartups.com, which is where I do all my startup blogging. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the places. So it's, I'm roughly easy to find. If you just Google, you know, Darmesh, uh, I'm, I'm, you can't, you can't avoid me. I'm everywhere. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Those were great questions, by the way. I, I really enjoyed this interview. I, I'm not saying that to pander. I'm, it's not in my nature to pander, but uh, it was fun. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.